Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's Shakespeare. I'm Dr. J. In today's episode, I'll be reading and discussing the passage from Romeo and Juliet when the two lovers first meet and speak to each other. We learned from the movie The Holiday that screen lovers should meet cute, and what more iconic lovers, stage, screen, or otherwise, are there but Juliet and her Romeo. And Shakespeare undoubtedly wanted Romeo and Juliet to meet cute. Yet, though most of Romeo and Juliet works as well for modern audiences as it did for Shakespeare's first audiences at London's Curtain Theatre, Romeo and Juliet's first meeting depends for its effectiveness today entirely on the beauty of the performers, as the dialogue is remarkably difficult to follow. It's that dialogue, though, that I wish to pause to consider and appreciate, because doing so not only provides a deeper understanding of the play, but a deeper understanding of poetry and art, and a deeper understanding of love itself. Let me first set the scene. Romeo, with his posse, has shown up uninvited at a masked ball hosted by the Capulet family, rivals to his own Montague family. From Shakespeare's dialogue and stage direction, it seems that only the gentlemen wear masks, which is to their advantage. They can check out the members of the fair sex and then approach them as they choose without risk of embarrassment as their own visages and identities are masked. As Romeo checks out the fair sex at the ball, expecting to see no one as beautiful as his fair Rosalind, he sees Juliet, and his world changes. She doth teach the torches to burn bright, he says in this dark and smoky room lit only by torches. He resolves to approach her and take her hand. What he says to her when he does so, and what she replies, is very difficult for a modern audience to follow. Why that's so, it's not just the old-fashioned language, and why making the effort to understand it, I'll discuss after I've read it, and then I'll read it a second time and talk more about it, and more about love, and more about the relationship between art and life. Though the stage directions don't say so, I'm sure that before he speaks, Romeo lifts his mask to reveal his beauty, matching Juliet's. Romeo, taking Juliet's hand. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, Ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Juliet. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Romeo. Have not saints' lips and holy palmer's too? Juliet, I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo, 
Oh, then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. They pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Juliet. Saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Romeo. Then move not while my prayer's effect I take. He kisses her. When watching Olivia Hussey in Leonard Whiting, or Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio perform this scene, one hardly hears this dialogue, other than the sound of it, much less wonder what it all means. It's something really romantic, whatever it is. But listening to me read it, without the beauty of the two torch-lit young lovers, you may wonder, what? But in the theater or movie house, things move on heartbreakingly, and frankly, no one cares about these lines. For the original audience, though, these words would have been important, both for their enjoyment and for their understanding of the play. They would have been important, though, not first for what they say, but for how they're said, something we're not used to paying attention to. To begin with, the lines rhyme. This in itself isn't remarkable. Of Romeo and Juliet's 3,000 lines, almost 500 of them rhyme. What is remarkable, though, is the way they rhyme. First, Romeo speaks four lines, in which the first and third lines rhyme, and the second and fourth lines rhyme. And then Juliet speaks four lines, which rhyme in exactly the same way. Four more lines are spoken, with Romeo speaking three and Juliet speaking one, and they rhyme in the same way. Then two lines are spoken, one by Juliet and one by Romeo, and they rhyme with each other, for a total of fourteen lines. Those of you who followed my Fireside Poems podcast, as well as those of you who are English majors, will recognize this. Romeo and Juliet have spoken a sonnet, a poem of fourteen lines rhyming in exactly this way. Shakespeare's audience would have recognized this as the lines were spoken. They're speaking a sonnet. And how would that audience have responded? First of all, they would not have thought, well, that's not very realistic. Two young people meeting for the first time aren't going to come up with a sonnet together. Not at all. Nobody attending the theater in Shakespeare's day was expecting realism. Whether speaking in rhyme or not, most of Shakespeare's characters speak in verse, that is, in words that follow a specific rhythm. This isn't just not how people speak now. It isn't how people spoke then. Nobody walked around saying to themselves, to be or not to be, that is the question. If anything, more people today speak to themselves in this way than did in Shakespeare's day, because we've memorized these words from Shakespeare. No, Shakespeare's audience wouldn't have expected realism on the stage, but they would have expected something real. And I think this meeting gives them something real, something more real than the average 
meet cute of today's rom-coms. But before getting to what's real, let's pause a second time, this time to consider what it is that's actually said. In his first four lines, the first quatrain of the sonnet, Romeo is waggling for permission to kiss Juliet's hand. Her hand, he says, is a shrine, which his rough touch violates, but he can make it better by smoothing the roughness with a kiss from his lips, two blushing pilgrims to this shrine. In her reply, the second quatrain, Juliet playfully denies his waggling, saying the shrines of saints, now she, not her hand, is the marble saint, have hands that pilgrims' hands touch, and that touch, palm to palm, is kiss enough. Juliet here not only picks up Romeo's conceit of holy pilgrims, but develops it by taking a synonym for pilgrims, palmers, and links it to the imagery of hands, their hands, touching palm to palm. Though Juliet thus properly denies Romeo's request to kiss her hand, she doesn't exactly repel him, but tacitly invites him to continue the game, which Romeo does by shifting attention in the next line from saints' hands to their lips, her lips. Juliet continues to hold him at bay, declaring that Pilgrim's lips aren't for kissing, but praying. Romeo finishes the third quatrain by asking her to grant his lips prayer by kissing them. This would require Juliet to lift her lips to his, which she isn't about to do, declaring the first line of the final couplet that saints, that is, the marble statues of saints, cannot move, though they can grant prayers. If you wish to kiss me, go ahead but don't expect me to kiss you first. And Romeo completes the couplet and the sonnet by accepting her stipulation, and thus having arrived at a proper mutuality, they kiss, and the audience, which has been holding its breath, sighs. Let's listen again to the complete exchange, and then turn to what is real in this exchange, if not realistic. Romeo, taking Juliet's hand. If I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle sin is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Juliet. Good pilgrim, you do wrong your hands too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Romeo, have not saints' lips and holy palmer's too? Juliet, I pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo, oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do, they pray. Grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Juliet, saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. 
Romeo. Then move not while my prayer's effect I take. He kisses her. So, what is real here, if not realistic? Well, first of all, is the beauty of the meeting, which is more than simply the physical beauty of the two young people, a deeper beauty conveyed by the beauty of the sonnet. Second is the playfulness of the sonnet, as Juliet takes Romeo's forwardness and uses it to put herself in charge without discouraging him. But in addition, there is something that transcends both the beauty and the playfulness while simultaneously embracing them both. You may remember that prior to this meeting, Romeo had declared his love for another girl, Rosalind. Why should we take this love more seriously than that love? Aren't both simply youthful, erotic infatuation? No, the love between Romeo and Juliet is something deeper, and this is what Shakespeare's original audience would have known right away by recognizing that together the two create a sonnet, both playful and beautiful, which only two souls suited to each other could do. When I think of this scene, I think of a pair of mallard ducks moving together by a stream bank in the spring. When they turn, they turn together. One doesn't lead and the other follow, no matter how closely you observe them. They're linked in a way science can't yet explain. So too Juliet and her Romeo. It isn't realistic that they spontaneously speak a sonnet together, yet Shakespeare having them do so conveys the reality of true erotic love, a mutuality of souls that were better off not trying to explain through science. That's what poetry is for. Two teenagers meeting and spontaneously creating a sonnet with their first words to each other isn't the only thing in Romeo and Juliet that's not realistic. No matter how much a playwright or any other artist might try to be realistic, and Shakespeare here isn't trying very hard to be realistic, they can never be fully realistic. Art is artifice, after all. Among all that's improbable in Romeo and Juliet, perhaps most improbable after the sonnet, is the friar's potion. Yes, the friar spends much of his time puttering around among the herbs in his garden, but we must suspend most of our disbelief to accept that he's concocted a potion that acts as the potion does in this play. Yet we recognize something true even in this, if only the truth of the Scottish poet Robert Burns's lines, the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft to glay, and leas naught but grief and pain. But there's more to it. The friar's botched plan leads to the double suicide of Romeo and Juliet, and it's vitally important that people, and particularly young people, recognize that this too is unrealistic. This isn't how true love ends, though sadly it's sometimes how false, selfish love ends. So we have to ask why, other than to wring our hearts and sell a lot of tickets, 
Does Shakespeare contrive a play that by all the art at his disposal shows us true love and then ends in the deaths of the lovers? What is real here, though not realistic? To suggest an answer, let me turn briefly to the two scenes where we first meet the two lovers separately. Romeo appears first in Act 1, Scene 1, but he only enters at line 156. The scene opens with two young men, Gregory and Samson, two servants of one of the play's two rival families, talking as they walk along. Samson talks as boys talk who want to be men. Of the servants of the other family, he says, he will fight the men and cut off the heads of the maids, that is, their maiden heads. When some of Montague's men approach, he draws his sword and declares, My naked tool is out. After some violence, and after the entrance of Romeo into this world, the scene shifts to Juliet's house. Juliet's mother is asking Juliet's wet nurse how old Juliet is. After answering that Juliet is two weeks and some days shy of 14, the nurse continues with a story of Juliet when she was just two and learning to walk. She falls on her face and begins to cry. The nurse's husband picks up the child and says to her, Dost thou fall upon thy face? Thou wilt fall backward when thou hast more wit, wilt thou not, Jewel? To which the nurse continues, Juliet, aged two, answers, I. The nurse laughs heartily in retelling the story, with the thirteen-year-old Juliet listening. Thus, Shakespeare establishes the world of Romeo and Juliet. It is a coarse, vulgar, and violent world. Is such a world a world in which love can flourish? Are there worlds in which love can't flourish, or is at best unlikely to flourish? No, Romeo and Juliet isn't very realistic, but it asks us to recognize the reality we live in and to ask questions of our society and of ourselves. Is the world we're part of and that we've helped make a world where love and beauty and playfulness can flourish? And to the extent it's not, to the extent that our world is a world of coarseness and violence and, we might add, worsening prospects for real humanity, what must we do to turn it around, to make it a world for love, for beauty, for playfulness, for humanity? Until next time, I'm Dr. J.